Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's great to be back on the air. Hard to believe we are uh, halfway through the first um, week, or rather through the first full week of October. But it definitely feels like fall, uh, especially where I live. Um, It's great to see uh, early signs of uh, foliage um, appearing. Uh, Of course, I know um, places well north of where I live, most notably in New York State, it's a far different story where, like, say, up in the Adirondack Park, it's around um, peak, um, we call it uh, peak phase. And uh, I was reading online earlier today where uh, in some parts of the Adirondack Park where um, foliage could change about 85% um, by week's end. So, you know, some parts right now um, are really seeing some phenomenal uh, foliage. I know uh, that where I live in Virginia, being in central Virginia, we will get there. It'll just take some time, but um, it's always um, nice to see the uh, leaves change color. I don't think that's something that really should be taken for granted, but uh, it is always nice to see that uh, change in scenery, especially around uh, uh, fall season. One thing I do know is that um, it's great to be uh, discussing uh, topics of significant historical importance that are uh, relevant and uh, worth sharing with all of you, my fellow listeners. So here we are again um, discussing uh, the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and the Frontier Rebels who challenged America's newfound sovereignty by William Hoagland. Now in this uh, podcast segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about about Pennsylvania uh, and about... um, Robert Morris, but we're also going to um, learn a little bit more about um, some political factions in Pennsylvania, but how those factions were able to get resolved through compromise. We will also uh, learn a great deal about um, whiskey itself, or rather I should say some information about whiskey, but really more about Hamilton's proposed tax on whiskey and how he was able to go about doing his research uh, based upon laws that were enacted overseas in Europe, as well as his uh, proposal schemes for how um, for how uh, taxes alone could be uh, generated based upon how um, big one's um, distillery was, uh, because you know it's one thing to have a distillery, but how but how big your distillery is would say a lot about how much you could produce. Uh, in terms of uh, overall gallons of whiskey. So I would definitely say that we are in for a good uh, segment. But then again, I I think we've always been in for good uh, podcast segments, regardless of the uh, topic, because I do feel that that it's a duty of mine to not only do my homework ahead of time, but to be able to give all of you, my fellow listeners, a thorough um, story. I mean, it's one thing for an event to happen, but in order to understand how... The event itself happened, we do need to learn as much as possible about what happened in the past that led to that present moment when the event itself occurred. So our uh, lead-off question for this uh, podcast segment of the Whiskey Rebellion is the following. Did Pennsylvania implement a new state constitution during the 1780s? And that answer is yes. The new state constitution enabled, listen to this folks, everyday ordinary common folk people everyday ordinary common folk people that to me sounds like uh, middling families you know those families that are probably making about you know 12 pounds a year in um, annual income so the new constitution enabled everyday ordinary common folk people more access or more levels of access to government unlike before could it be that with everyday, ordinary, common folk people getting more levels of access to government, to me it sounds as though these people are going to be able to um, not just so much have a voice in their government, but be able to represent those um, whom are of their uh, same um, status in society. Because up until the 1780s, it would be fair to say that Pennsylvania's government was operated by those whom were of the uh, well-to-do classes in society. But I think it's fair to say that even um, in colonies like Virginia, 
before shots were fired around the world that the only people uh, representing um, that were representing the government were those of the uh, well-to-do, uh, the wealthiest two uh, percent of uh, of the Greater Virginia society, being that of, of uh, representing in the uh, House of Burgesses. Now, the 1780s in Pennsylvania saw political power rotate back and forth between a party of creditors and merchants led by Robert Morris versus a populist alliance group whom rarely saw people from within make their way out to the vote voting poll stations. You know, when I think of the populists, I tend to think of the late 19th century, just before the time that uh, Theodore Roosevelt became president at the start of the 20th century in the aftermath of uh, William McKinley's assassination. But the uh, populists uh, represent a new wave of uh, reform. They um, represent, um, perhaps to me, they represent a, a fresh breed of um, new ideas that can make um, that can make Pennsylvania better. It can not just as a colony better, but can allow um, everyday ordinary people to um, better fulfill themselves. So given that this populist alliance group is in place, wouldn't it be fair to say that their, one of their objectives would be to help improve uh, people's um, access and getting to poll stations for voting? Yes. But let's keep in mind that the voting poll stations that we know of today are not, weren't anything like what, what, what would have been around in the uh, 18th century. The western counties, and remember there were five in Pennsylvania, those five being Allegheny, Bedford, Westmoreland, um, Fayette, and um, I'll tell you here in a moment, I can't believe I'm having, having a lapse here, but, uh, but I'll get it solved here in a moment, folks. Fayette, Washington, Allegheny, Westmoreland, and Bedford. It pays to have a map at the front of the book because that map tells you where all of the um, events in terms of uh, uprising and where um, where the greatest populations of people were uh, living in uh, western Pennsylvania. So the western counties, being those five that I just mentioned, were very, were very large in terms of having um, a decent-sized population. It may not have been the same as, say, Phil greater Philadelphia, but given that these western counties are very large, it is fair to say that getting uh, people to polling or voting centers is not something that can be a day's trip. In other words, it's going to take multiple days to get uh, people from within the western counties to their uh, proper um, destination in terms of where to go uh, for voting. And if that's a challenge enough, there were many incumbents. You know, incumbents are those who are up for re-election or just, you know, up for election. Many incumbents had scores of money. What do you mean by scores of money? It means that they just have a lot of money in their pockets. And by having a lot of money in their pockets, it allows for these incumbents to pull tricks up their sleeve. And, you know, this might be a good example in the 18th century of uh, dirty work or of um, dirty uh, political practices. But it's one thing to have sc uh, a score of money up your uh, sleeve. But the large sums of, sums of money here meant that, um, that uh, incumbents could go about um, deterring the opposition uh, candidates from winning. In other words, maybe it's fair to say that there was that there were probably um, forms of voter fraud that could have gone on in the 18th century, or just other means of improperly counting all the votes to where an incumbent, whom was um, far more well known, someone say who was on the same uh, page as Robert Morris, whom had uh, a large slew of money, was able to pull out uh, the victory when in fact when in fact the challenger probably um, um, emerged as the real winner, but at the same time, for some, for a fair number of people, 
who are a little um, opposed or uncertain about this populist alliance group, it's fair to say that they want to uh, preserve order, and that is the order being the creditors and the merchants uh, running the show in Pennsylvania. It's kind of like Ham Alexander Hamilton's version of the wealthy and the well-educated. Let's not be putting the hand power in the hands of these uh, populists, because if they're demanding change for one thing, they might as well demand change for everything else. So there again, for the uh, merchants and the creditors, it's it, to me it sounds like they are very uh, reluctant on not wanting to give up uh, their power. But who are uh, Robert Whitehill and William Finley? They are both uh, representatives serving in the Pennsylvania State Assembly, and it turns out that they um, both come from um, from Western Pennsylvania. Uh, one of the two is from uh, Cumberland, and then the other is from uh, Westmoreland uh, County. Now, I'm not sure at this time in the 1780s if there was a Cumberland County or not, but I do know that by 1791 there are five counties that make up Western Pennsylvania, being Westmoreland, Fayette, Bedford, Washington, and Allegheny. And this go-around, folks, I didn't have to look at the map. <laughs> but one thing I do know is that uh, Robert Whitehill is a farmer. William Finley is a weaver. So to me, you know, you've got a farmer and a weaver being um, a, a tradesman on hand. Both men supported and encouraged fellow assemblymen to suspend the written grant, or rather the charter, on Robert Morris's bank. Why would these two men have gone as far as encouraging and fellow assemblymen to suspend Robert uh, Morris's bank? They felt, uh, for one, that the that Robert Morris's bank served no true public purpose. In other words, whom would whom could benefit from Robert Morris's bank? Those who were on the same level as he was, prosperous, not just prosperous, but well-to-do. You know, a lot of money. Um, connections are high, and I mean, shoot, there's nothing wrong with connections, but the Robert Morris's bank is not going to cater to the little guys. So, for Mr. Whitehill, he argued that farmers and artisans pressed for cash, aka paper money, or money in general, were simply unable to obtain loans at Morris's bank. Mr. Finley advised near, that nearly a third of the families he represented had their properties taken as a means of failing to keep up with making payments on time. So in other words, for Mr. Finley, a third of his families, being about 33% of, of those whom he represented, basically had their properties foreclosed because they could not keep up with making payments on time. Now I could see why uh, Robert, um, I could see why Mr. Um, Whitehill and Mr. Finley uh, did oppose uh, Robert Morris's bank, largely because Robert Morris's bank, for one, did not cater to the little guys, and two, they felt that Robert Morris's bank simply only cared about those whom were who made up the wealthiest one to two percent of perhaps the greater uh, Pennsylvania society. James Wilson, who was another um, individual who signed not only the um, Declaration of Independence, but as well, but also the United States Constitution, he, along with Robert Morris, decided to do something very unique. They modified the situation at hand. That says a lot here, especially for Robert Morris. By and they did so by allowing frontier farmers the opportunity to open a bank account. As long as the frontier farmer himself had good connections in Philadelphia, because during the 1780s, you know, Philadelphia is still uh, considered the uh, capital of Pennsylvania. It'll still be a while before it relocates officially to what we now know as the present-day capital of Harrisburg. So yes, if one has good connections in Philadelphia, then yes, they are able to open up a bank account. But they would also need to get someone well-respected, 
someone who's well-known or just someone who um, has a good reputation to do what? To sign their notes. So in other words, you want to make sure that you have um, good rapport. You don't want to burn any bridges, but by having solid connections in Philadelphia will assure you uh, greater opportunities with access to a bank account, not just short-term, but long-term. Now, given that Robert Whitehill and William Finley led the opposition efforts behind suspending the grant for Robert Morris's bank, what new proposal did they come up with instead? Both men sought creation of a new land bank that would provide everyday people, being the middling families, with access to credit including greater means of producing paper, considering many lacked access to what? How about hard money? You know, the silver, gold. So, you know, it's one thing to, yes, say that I want a, you know, a new land bank that's going to provide, or rather cater to everyday people. But the bigger question is this. Um, if you're going to open up a, a new land bank, and you want there, you want it to center upon producing um, more paper versus uh, hard money. What happens if paper money loses its uh, consistency? What happens if there's more mo paper money issued in circulation versus revenue that's coming in? In other words, you don't want to have too big of an imbalance to where you end up being in the red versus being in the green. And by being in the red, folks, that means deficit, you know, whereas green is surplus. Populist lawmakers did get some unexpected support. Where would they have gotten unexpected support from? Have you all ever heard the term speculators? What does speculator mean or speculators? Speculators are people being people whom are investors, they invest in uh, stocks, property, with the primary intent on making a profit or making profits in general. I do know that uh, many of our forefathers were uh, land speculators. I mean, George Washington was one. Uh, James Wilson himself was a land speculator. Uh, just to name a few uh, who were uh, land speculators. I mean, even Robert Morris himself was one. Especially, I will say, especially before, but even after the um, American Revolutionary War ended, uh, many of the uh, forefathers did um, invest in uh, lands that we now know, or land territories that we now know as the Northwest Territory, being Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, uh Wisconsin, uh, Illinois, and uh, Northeast, I don't know about Northeast Minnesota just yet, but they were investing in lands to where uh, they could claim a greater stake in the property that lied west. But more often than not, many of these um, individuals whom became speculators often lost out on more money than um, being able versus being able to reap the uh, profits long term. So, nonetheless, those speculators do come to the um, assistance or defense of uh, populist lawmakers. And even the speculators, as crazy as this sounds, they had been excluded from the banking group. I've, I wondered why they would have been excluded from the banking group. Could it be that those men whom were in the banking group were um, conservative, in this, not just conservative politically, but conservative with, um, with how they approached uh, money? Yes. After all, those men in the banking group are cons are, probably have more of a concern about um, paying down um, all outstanding debts versus, versus using money like there would be no tomorrow. Maybe it's fair to say that members of the banking group saw uh, the speculators as individuals who could have come across as being a little bit shady with their dealings, or perhaps individuals who were um, in search of the almighty dollar 
to where they were willing to spend their money like there was no tomorrow, only to go broke and not have anything to show for what they invested. There are a lot of, uh, perhaps a lot of what-ifs, but but based upon what I um, had read in leading up to this podcast segment, that uh, speculators had been excluded from the banking group. Now, if that's uh, a little radical and onto itself, how about this one for being even a little bit more radical? The Pennsylvania Assembly did go about suspending Robert Morris's bank charter. To me, that's pretty uh, radical, to say the least. Uh, Robert Morris accused the Pennsylvania Assembly of stealing his bank's property. Robert Whitehill fired back by uh, claiming that the charter wasn't the property of one person, being that of Mr. Morris, but instead the bank charter as a whole or as an, as, a, as, a, as an entire entity, belonged to the people of Pennsylvania. So in other words, the bank charter needed to do more than just cater to one group of people. Instead, it needed to be seen as a, a banking institution that represented, represented the people of Pennsylvania as a whole, meaning not just the wealthy, but the middling families, and maybe the lower class uh, families as well whom uh, would be able to uh, require some form of assistance if it meant being able to uh, establish um, connections in Philadelphia. We should keep in mind that even middling uh, families or middle classes, uh, the middle classes of uh, society, were not necessarily bad off. Um, if they had the right connections, they um, could have could be considered what we now know is in today's times as uh, upper middle class. Now, uh, whom was still in control of the Mississippi River um, before and after 1783 when the Revolutionary War ended? I, I'm sure some of you are kind of wondering, well, what does the Mississippi River have to do with, uh, with an uprising in uh, Pennsylvania? Well, the Mississippi River, I can tell you this much, is very, very vital. The reason why I say it's vital is because of trade. And not just trade, but perhaps um, we could be looking at somewhere in the future down the road where the Mississippi River, um, not just so much where the river is, but the territory that lies along the Mississippi River one day from now, that territory could result in doubling the size of the United States. But in the meantime, um, I can tell you this much, that Britain nor France are in control of the Mississippi River before and after, 17, before and after 1783 when the Revolutionary War ended. Uh, that answer is Spain. Populist leaders from the West wanted the Mississippi River opened for commercial waterway use which meant less dependency on, on bartering. In other words, you know, well, let me ask you this. What, what is bartering? Okay, bartering is a form of trade, but bartering itself basically refers to um, situations where, where one will trade something with the intent on getting something back in return that will add up to uh, the same value. It's not in the form of cash, but basically it's trading goods as a means of um, being the equivalent of actually receive, actually um, getting something in, in physical cash. Bartering is, um, you know, it's uh, one of those practices that may be good at the present moment, but it might not have the same um, return uh, down the road. Bartering, rather I should say bartering, was really more of a, a short-term, um, really could be seen as uh, short-term practices get, to make up for um, whatever you did not have um, that was in need uh, by, by another party. So the um, for the Mississippi River, if the... Um, if the populist leaders from the West had it their way, 
it would simply mean that there would be less dependency on a barter-based economy, as well as reduced encounters with landlords and creditors. What are people along the western frontiers having trouble with? Well, many of them are struggling to pay their, um, what we think of in today's time as like mortgages. People are struggling to pay, uh, to make monthly payments on their uh, properties. So by uh, opening up the west in terms of the Mississippi River, they're hoping that perhaps there could be reduced encounters with uh, conflicts down the road pertaining to landlords and creditors seizing uh, farmers' properties. Now, access to the east by roads, I will say access to the east by roads was not easy. It was unpredictable. George Washington saw keeping the west directly linked to the east as essential for greater national purposes. George Washington does want to see the Mississippi River open, but but the way that people in the West are trying to approach it, in Washington's eyes, is not the right approach. It seems like the father of our country, I mean, he's not gotten that title just yet, but but I would like to go ahead and give him that title, but it seems like Washington has always been one step ahead. In other words, he sees something that the rest of us don't see at that moment, but Washington knows that with time, the Mississippi River will become that of the Americans, but he's hoping to be able to obtain that through means of diplomacy. If that's uh, challenging enough, how about this one? Are tensions with Indians along the western frontier lands any better or worse? They're worse. And it's remained a, an issue unresolved given that state governments to the east have provided no legit policies regarding secure frontiers, regarding security frontiers. In other words, frontiers people are left to fend for themselves against Indian uprisings. State taxes went towards everything else of high importance, but nothing for Western safety. Is it fair to say that Easterners dub Westerners as being a little bit inferior, perhaps? Is it fair to say that Easterners feel that Westerners have been responsible for some of the problems with Indians? Yes. After all, we did learn from a previous podcast where uh, Westerners did um, make their way into um, frontier lands without permission from their legislatures, only to uh, disturb the peace amongst the Indians, and only for the Indians in turn to uh, launch counterattack assaults. You know, yes, it was unfortunate about the proclamation of 1763 prohibiting westward expansion west of the Appalachians, but at the same time, there were those who uh, went at their own risk. And, you know, when you go at your own risk, you know, you either learn to survive, you either learn to make uh, the adaptations and adjustments, but if you don't, then you don't have anybody else to blame but yourself. So I believe it is fair to say that for the Easterners, you know, yes, they want to make sure that everything is funded, but are they uh, concerned about what would happen if um, alliances, if whatever alliances were in existence with Indians got ruined? Maybe. Or what they, it's not so much alliances, but they could be worried that if they um, did anything to cause uh, further harm to the Indians, that Indians along the frontiers would go um, would make their way over the Alleghenies and into um, coastal cities and uh, launch um, what we would think of now in today's time as uh, terrorist attacks. There's a lot of uncertainty, and that's why uh, the frontier um, is one of those uh, places where where there's just a lot of um, uneasiness about. Well, let's uh, move on next to um, the, the United States Constitution. 
After all, the United States Constitution was signed um, and approved of in September of 1787. Of course, we do know that delegates, being about 55 of them, arrived around um, sometime around the middle of May 1787. Uh, I don't know if all 55 were present at once, but I do know that uh, by the time uh, September, around September 17th of 1787, 39 of them would go about uh, signing the, the document. But nonetheless, what's significant about Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1 of the United States Constitution? How about the federal government having the rights to collect different types of taxes from the entire people of the United States? Okay, this is right down Alexander Hamilton's alley. Something else that would probably be uh, down his alley, too, that was put into the Constitution is the following. If, it, if issues arose where federal laws weren't being abided by in a state... The Constitution, under Sections 15 and 16, which I believe would have uh, come under Article 1, allowed for the federal government the right to call out state militias and going about enforcing federal laws. Now, did a major compromise happen in 1790? Okay, compromise meaning where people from uh, two opposing sides come together to work out their differences and reach a, a feasible or reasonable solution. So yes, a major compromise did happen in 1790. Uh, the matter at hand involved Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison. I can tell you this much, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison are on one side, Alexander Hamilton's on the other. Hamilton won the decision over um, the national um, government behind taking over and paying state debts from the Revolutionary War. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison got approval in relocating the nation's capital from Philadelphia to Washington under the Residency Act of 1790, which made Philadelphia America's new capital spot until the year 1800. Okay, and where, and where was the capital before Philadelphia? New York City. Or at the time, they would have called it New York, but we now know it as New York City. Alexander Hamilton, as the Treasury Secretary, proposed issuing bonds where payments secured in return went towards using revenue from the new taxes on imported goods coming in from overseas, like being Europe and the Caribbean. Hamilton's scheme did, in fact, prove successful. Just when George Washington has seen, just when he thinks he's seen enough crises, that was a little bit of a crisis, but it probably did not turn out to be the worst of crises. But nonetheless, compromise prevailed over partisanship. Uh, what does whiskey literally mean? Well, in Gaelic terms, Gaelic is uh, what we uh, refer to in Irish. Uh, in Gaelic terms, whiskey refers to uis bitha, or water of life. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, whiskey here, um, not just briefly about how it's... Um, not so much how it's made, but per perhaps what Americans uh, would have been using in the 18th century to make it. Uh, and then um, learning about some uh, cost elements behind uh, whiskey. Uh, nature produces alcohol, but yet restricts it. Restricts it. When yeast dies, uh, the process of fermentation ends. Alcohol boils first over water, and once it's done boiling, it disappears right away as steam. I'm not a distiller, folks. I mean, I, I know of some people who, um, who run a distillery. So if I wanted to learn more about them, about, dis, about uh, distilleries, I would have to go through uh, those people that I know. So what I'm providing you with here is just some basic 101 information.
Now, in the 18th century, uh, Americans used what's, what was called a pot still, or distillation apparatus for distilling liquors like whiskey. Uh, wash, if you ever hear the term wash, that's a substance that's made from rye or corn, or rye or corn mash. Copper kettles, and I've seen copper kettles um, on, tele, on TV documentaries that per pertain to whiskey, Copper kettles were the preferred choice for uh, bubbling over a fire. Now, Americans in the 18th century, is it fair to say that Americans in the 18th century were drinking alcoholic beverages in large amounts? Absolutely. Is it fair to say that, that water was not safe to drink in the 18th century? Yes. Think about this, folks. Water, we didn't, not everyone had access to a well, those who did have access to wells were probably well-to-do, but those whom did not have access to wells would have been the uh, opposite in terms of uh, societal status, just because having a well really was a luxury onto itself. So, so it would be fair to say that people stayed away from um, drinking water and preferred instead alcohol, largely because it was a safer... Um, it was one thing to drink alcohol, but um, but to abuse alcohol and become a drunk was a whole other story. But I I can also point out that um, distilling itself went on in people's homes, community stills, to large-scale commercial operations. Now, it's one thing to live in the East... But is it fair to say that Easterners would have viewed Westerners diff differently? Sure. Did Easterners satirize people from Western mountains by labeling them as repeated drunks, or what we might think of as habitual drunks? Believe it or not, they did. But the overall popularity in the East is what made whiskey so unique given cities along the coast like Philadelphia, which had the nation's highest population. And, and in 1787, the year that the Constitution was signed, Philadelphia had about 40,000 people in its city. When you consider that, only, that there were about 4 million um, people living in America at around 1787, but for Philadelphia to have a population of 40,000, that was pretty high for the time. So Philadelphia which had the nation's highest population, would always have a great demand for getting access to a lucrative cash crop in whiskey being produced along the frontier. Was it expensive to ship bushels of dry material that went into making whiskey? What do you all think? Yes. So here's some uh, math uh, scenarios that we're going to talk about here. For example, um, moving 24 bushels of milled rye over the Allegheny Mountains to eastern markets would have required using multiple pack animals like horses and mules. The cost would have been around $6. I know that may not seem like a high cost to us, but we have to remember um, that everything is relevant in, with regards to the time in which... Um, something took place or during the, the time that say one generation uh, grew up in but the cost being around six dollars that cost pertained to transport matters so transporting the commodity ex far exceeded uh, revenues coming in on the return side so it's one thing to transport say bushels of dry material that went into making whiskey but if the cost of uh, shipping the bushels outweighs the revenues on the return side, then we have a little bit of a problem. However, there was um, a solution that over time was a, um, I don't know if I would say is, is a savior, but it's a great uh, modified approach. Over time, whiskey began to be seen as currency in places like western Pennsylvania frontier, where coin, being the hard currency, wasn't easily accessible. So how about that? Whiskey can now, was now being seen as currency. Okay, we know that bartering lacked consistency. 
but whiskey held firm, meaning it could always be exchanged for money down the road, which ensured that the overall value stayed intact against metal. Whiskey is never going to lose its value, folks. So if you have whiskey on hand and you're willing to trade the whiskey to get something else in return, that whis the whiskey alone, its, its price is going to uh, stay intact against, um, against uh, hard currency being that of uh, silver and uh, gold. Was there a tax on grain? No, uh, there wasn't. But those living on the western frontier whom raised grain were forced to convert it into whiskey, which meant transporting the commodity eastward. Tax itself did pertain to western farmers where grain was prevalent versus those living in places more convenient where the tax had no impact. So the proposed whiskey tax, once enacted, would get collected by federal officials, but in coin, hard money. Failure in registering a still was still subjected to cash, or subjected to a cash fine. The first fine could be set at $150, then rose to $250. To me, those are very steep fines in the 18th century, considering that uh, the fines alone exceeded most people's yearly income. If you're a, a farmer on the frontier of western Pennsylvania, you would never be able to... Uh, it would be very, very hard to come up with $150 to pay a fine. I don't know how many months' wages that would be, but it almost could be maybe a year and a half's wages at best. Now, as for Alexander um, Hamilton, Hamilton, I mean, I don't know if I would have agreed with everything he did politically, but there were things that he did do that he deserves credit for, especially from a financial point of view that many of his um, findings and proposals um, bear uh, resemblance to what we have in today's modern-day world is a modern-day Federal Reserve System. But Alexander Hamilton studied laws from overseas in England pertaining to uh, excise measures. In 1785, two years after the uh, Treaty of Paris was signed, ending the Revolutionary War, Parliament passed a measure providing tax checks, or what we think of as rebates, to uh, large distillers. Parliament supported larger mass-scale production of whiskey and went as far as passing other measures where it became illegal to have stills operating where whiskey uh, production stood at less than 500 gallons. Well, isn't it fair to say that uh, the population of England is bigger than the entire population of, of, the, of this new United States of America? Absolutely. So wouldn't it be fair to say that uh, because there's a bigger population of people in England, that there would be far more need to be um, operating uh, distilleries where, they are, where it's going to be 500 gallons and more? Yes. It would be fair to say that those uh, distilleries that have, I don't know, I don't know of any distilleries that would have had, had up to about 500 gallons or could produce 500 gallons of whiskey in America. But if there were any that did exist, they would be uh, considered um, in, in an elite 1% to 2%. But the bottom line is that Parliament has done something very unique here. They're trying to keep government officials in England are trying to, um, I don't know if I would say they're trying to curb uh, competition, but they're trying to uh, curb, um, they're trying to uh, maybe Im impose what's called checks and balances. In other words, if you have a large mass scale production of whiskey, and you and you are producing 500 gallons or, or more, then your needs will constantly be able to be met. 
but if you're a little guy operating, it's hard because the little guys may not be able to produce, not only so much produce the uh, same amount of whiskey as the big guys, but the little guys, um, for some of them, it may not be a permanent business. It could be a side business, whereas for the large distillers, this is a... Um, this is this is a a, a business that's uh, long term. This is a business that um, it may not be full year business, but it's a business that um, that caters to more than one client. The big distillers did in fact support the whiskey tax. The distillers in towns and villages would get monitored more often by customs officials, and per Hamilton's proposal, they would pay a per gallon tax on all gallons of whiskey physically produced whereas distillers in the countryside or what we would think of as the frontier would pay a regular flat fee per gallon capacities of their stills which determine the total number of gallons uh, per fermented liquid or what we would call wash that was um, that was still uh, found inside the uh, pot. Hamilton sought nine cents per each whiskey gallon produced. So here's another math scenario, folks. 100 gallons of rye or corn wash. This could produce an average of up to 12 gallons of liquor. A 100-gallon still operating at full strength netted 180 gallons per month. 180 times 4. What does 4 refer to, folks? four-month operation, 180 times four is 720 gallons. Collecting nine cents per gallon came to around or just over $60 a year if operating a 100-gallon still. $60 at that time may not have seemed like a lot, but, six, but to collect $60 in taxes if you are operating a 100-gallon still does go a long way towards assisting with um, with uh, helping uh, pay um, outstanding debts. Is it fair to assume that small distillers made whiskey in a shorter time span? Yes, uh, most likely between one week and up to two months tops for uh, overall production. Small distillers were often occupied with other work related often occupied with other work-related tasks on their properties. For many of these uh, small distillers, they had few employees to none. They paid far more per gallon versus nine cents paid by large distillers. And remember, too, folks, that the big distillers had more money. So if you have more money, what does that mean? You can um, engage in long-term investing, including alternative uh, payment measures, Big distillers receive two cents back on every 10 gallons after paying the nine cents per gallon on tax and cash. Small producers, if operating in towns, resorted to using, um, if they operated in towns, very few small producers were able to operate in towns, but if they did, they would resort to using uh, punitive bonds, meaning that they would pay a higher tax per gallon versus the, the big distiller. Big distiller producers had better means behind lowering prices. This meant that there would always be a greater likelihood in taking over customers whom previously did business with small distillers, which could also mean eliminating the little guys out of business altogether and hence destroying local economies. So I could see now why, the, why small distillers had reasons to be in fear that their livelihood was going to be taken. Not just so much a tax, but what about their livelihoods, not just short-term but long-term? What's going to happen if our distillery um, gets so, um, gets, uh, so uh, negatively impacted by big distillers to where, to where we have no means of being able to... Um, operate and be assured that we will get uh, profits in return. So in other words, for the, for the um, small distillers, 
they felt that the government was favoring the big distillers and that the big distillers perhaps would um, be interested in uh, going about creating a monopoly. So for the, you know, for the small distillers, what they want is fair competition, but they don't want to be living in fear knowing that the big distiller could always uh, buy them out. Believe it or not, folks, more than a fourth, 25% and over, of America's stills were located along the forks of the Ohio River, you know, the Alle where the Allegheny and the Monongahela uh, meet, um, meet, meet in a junction of where the um, Ohio River uh, lies, you know, hence the three rivers. Prior to Congress's uh, enacting the whiskey tax, a grumbling amongst Pennsylvania's frontiers people kicked back into full swing. So in other words, there is a lot of um, worry. There is a, a lot of worry about, hey, what's going to happen when this tax gets enacted? What's going to happen to our livelihoods? Are we going to still be in operation, say, five years from now? Or let alone maybe just a year from now? There's a lot of uh, skepticism. But we have to wonder, with time, can there be a solution? Can Washington avert an all-out war with the rebels? If a war were to ensue, how can we go about assuring that mass lives are not lost by means of unnecessary violence? Well, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to uh, talk a little bit more about Herman Husband. Uh, I know that uh, from a previous podcast, uh, Hugh Henry Brackenridge had met Herman Husband while uh, en route to uh, present-day uh, Pittsburgh. And I will also try my best to um, talk about another uh, person um, whom we have not discussed about yet, but someone who is of uh, importance given that this person um, could have a position with the government. And, of course, we have to wonder, okay, if this person that whom has not been discussed yet has a position with the government, would it have anything to do with perhaps uh, collecting um, money off of the uh, whiskey tax? Well, thank you for your time, as always. I look forward to being back on the, on the air with all of you, my fellow 101 listeners. As I've said before, I'd say it again, without you all, I don't know where I would be. But you all have um, helped make this um, happen, and I encourage all of you out there, um, if, you, if you all know of others who are interested in podcasting or would like to um, listen in on my podcast, just tell them to come to Anchor. They won't be missing out on anything. Thank you for now, and wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.